So, a couple things. We're going to be doing this series throughout the summer. Uh, we've named it His Story because it's God's story. I've done a version of it before, so if you've been here for that, and some of it might be a little bit review, but I am wanting to feel like God showed me just so much more about the story of God that I'm wanting to uh, bring to um, everyone. A couple things that just kind of be aware of. Because we're trying to do a broad overview of the entire Bible, um, I won't be able to read as much scripture. I won't be a specific text every week. There'll be a little bit like this week and stuff. So I'm just, I've had, I remember our first time they're like, well, I just want to get back into the word. And I'm like, well, like, it's the word. It's like the whole word, right? Like we're trying to see a big overview. Um, and so the question then comes, why this story? And I, I think that the big part of it is that it helps bring clarity and perspective um, to our world and just the human life within it. I mean, I think that's really, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do. And we're wanting to see God more in that process. I think that it's easy for us as we look around the world today and we, we see the world that we live in, um, I think we could all agree that things aren't as they should be. I think that much of what we see in the world and sees, we see brokenness and suffering and evil. And sometimes it's hard to understand that in the light of, of a a good God at work. And I think that with that comes the questions that pop into so many people's mind is like, why is it this way? How did we get to where we're at? Um, how can we function in that space? What can be done? How do I fit in that space? And many people and religions, whether it be influencers or, or, or different religions, they attempt to answer these questions, and many of them do answer these questions. But for us and for our sake, we're wanting to see what God's Word and what the Bible has to say about that. And that's interesting because when I say the word the Bible, so many people have so many different reactions, so many different emotions that flood to their mind, flood to their heart. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think for some, when they hear the Bible, they kind of think of an outdated religious book that has very little uh, relevance to today. They hear things like these and thous and Old King James, and it's all associated with the Bible. While others, when they hear the Bible, they might think of it as simply a set of moral laws that help us understand how we're supposed to live in a specific way so that we can uh, keep God from getting mad at us. That it's a way of living. While others, when you mention the Bible, they might experience shame, and it, it's, a, it's almost synonymous with guilt, and not living up to a certain standard, and um, I, I just shame, well, high levels of shame. That it's this moral law that brings, that they can't live up to. And then there's others that may have not even thought about this at all. You might be like, I've never, none of those have crossed my mind. Awesome. Whatever the case, wherever you're at, I think that the reason why I want to specify those is I think that the challenge is this, that the Bible often, in my opinion, is misunderstood and misused. And what I mean by that is I, I would say, and I've got to be very careful of this, is that often the Bible is reduced to simply an instruction manual for living. That the Bible exists for us to know 
what to do. And with that, a lot of the other negative emotions that people experience is because the Bible has been misused to abuse, to control, to manipulate, and all these other things. But here's what happens. If I'm reading this only to figure out what I need to do so that I can either have success or I can keep God from mad at me or to please God, if this, all this is is uh, the, you know, the instruction manuals before leaving earth or whatever the silly saying is on the bumper stickers, right? Like if that's all this is, it changes how I read it. It changes how I read it. What I mean by that is what often is happening is no matter what I'm reading, I'm always looking for what to do and what not to do. What do I need to do and what do I not need to do to keep God from getting mad at me? It changes how I read stories and ultimately what ends up happening is I read myself into the story. I end up looking for myself. What I mean by that is I'm reading about David. I'm going, okay, what is David doing and what am I doing? And how is David living and how should I be living? And, and, and how can I connect with this person? And how can I per- connect with that person? And, and, and you're looking like, how would I function in this situation? And, and listen, at the end of the day, like, I'm not saying that's wrong, okay? But I'm saying that's not the purpose of Scripture, that's part of it. Instructions are part of it. I mean, there's very specific, explicit things that God says. I'm not saying we don't do what the Bible says. I'm not saying that. I'm going to clarify it. I might get a weird email or something. But if that's all it is, I would say you're, we are missing it. And that is not God's intention. Because not only does it change how we read it, so I'm looking for myself and trying to model my life after it, but it changes how I see life. What I mean by that is if the Bible and being a Christian is a set of things I need to do, then life is reduced to how well I'm doing those things or not doing the other things and how well I'm performing in that space. Am I doing the things I'm reading about? That's what Christian life ends up becoming, a track record of how well I'm killing it or not killing it, following or not following. I mean, it gets to get into the weeds, how much I'm reading and not reading, right? That's what the, the whole of Christianity becomes. And I think lastly, and most importantly, it changes how we see God. How we see God is very transactional. That when I do well, God is pleased, and when I do not do well, God is not pleased. And when I'm, when I'm putting forth this effort, then God's gonna come alongside, and when I'm not putting forth the effort, God is gonna look at me and be like, you know, the whole idea that you gotta meet him halfway, that's not in scripture. We can't even get to halfway. Okay? It changes everything. And it creates a life of performance. And I would say that for the average follower of Jesus, nobody's saying, well, I am saved by works. You'd all be like, no way, man, I'm saved by grace. And we'd all be like, yes, but how do we live? Oh, I'm, I, I live, I'm, I'm, I please God by works. I'm acceptable to God by works. You may not physically say that, that's how we function. And it leads to a life of constant introspection, eyes on me, how well am I doing, a life of ups and downs and valleys and mountains based on my performance, based on how well I, quote unquote, please God. But what if I told you that instruction was not the primary design for scripture? What if I could show you that the Bible in its most basic form is a story? It's a story about God. It's a story about God 
pursuing and redeeming a people for himself. It's a story that's written over anywhere from 1,500 to 3,000 years old by 45 different people, give or take, consisting of about 66 different letters and books from multiple continents. And these books that the, that the Bible consists of are filled with poetry and history and law. It's filled with narrative. It's filled with all different types of literature. But one thing we always want to keep in mind as we begin our adventure into studying the Bible is we want to understand that this was written to a specific people group in the Middle East called Israel. It's ultimately their story as well, from their beginning and to where we kind of pick up. And so we always want to have that in mind. The context of this is written to a Middle Eastern people group, thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, whatever, like several thousands of years ago. And so we always want to have that context when we're going through it. But all of these works were compiled to tell a story about God, how God made a world perfect and how he made a people for himself and then placed him in this world and how that world was broken and what God has done and is doing to restore. And it's in this story that we find a lot of the answers to the questions that permeate the world. It really helps give us perspective. I want to tell you this story. and It's going to take weeks. So if you miss a week, I'm not going to be able to do a lot of review. Just pick up um, throughout the podcast. But with this, we're going to be looking at specific themes that run through. I'm not going to hit every book. I'm not going to hit every passage. We're going to be looking at main themes, and the ultimate focus is going to be on God. Every week, we want to look for how God is at work. We're wanting to find characteristics about God, and in response to that, we're going to say, how do I fit into this work that God is doing? Like, Ultimately, it's about God and who he is and what he's done. And then we place ourselves in that story. This perspective, my hope, ultimately, is that it should affect how we see God, ourselves, and the world around us. Because at the end of the day, if God is at work, as we're looking for him in Scripture to be at work, if God is at work in the world around me today, then I then begin to look for him in everyday life. Because it's not like God worked in the past and now he's not at work now. But if I'm training myself to look for God in Scripture, then I start looking for him in everyday life. How is God working in me? How is he working in my neighbor? How is he working in this situation? God is at work. But also, it changes in regards to how I understand myself. If God is at work in the world, as I'm looking for him at work, then he must be at work in me. And he's changing me from the inside out. And so I begin to see God at work in my life. And I think that brings encouragement. So often I think as we, if we're functioning in this space of constantly working and trying to make sure I'm doing enough and not doing enough to please God, it, we end up comparing ourselves to everyone else. We just do. And so we're always like, am I doing good? Because that guy's doing really good, but this person's not doing that great. So like, I must be somewhere right here. Like, I'm okay, but I could get better. You know, like, right? And so what ends up happening in space, like, man, is, am I even changing right now? But what we'll find is we're looking at God in the world at work, both in the world around me and in me. You start seeing God's presence cultivating and nourishing and changing us. And guess where our eyes go? Onto him. Off us, onto him. Off our neighbor, onto him. 
It's the most freeing thing I can offer you. And so, let's begin. Genesis chapter 1. Makes sense to start in the beginning. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. We're just going to read first three verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Our story begins with God. Our story begins with God. And what's interesting here is we see right off the get-go that our story lets us know that God is eternal. What eternal means is that there is no beginning and there is no end. Okay? It's this idea that God exists and has always existed outside of time and space. And we see that because when it says in the beginning, when things started, when time began, God was already there. It was in the beginning that God created time, matter, and space. But not only that, we see that as God is existing outside of time, we see that there's different participants in the creation story. We see that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We see that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. And then we see that God said. We see the Word of God coming into the picture. We see, and what is throughout Scripture communicated is that God is triune. What triune means is three persons existing as one. Now, it's hard for us as human beings to understand that, but we see it taught throughout Scripture that God is this triune, three-in-one, Father, Son, and Spirit existing for all of time and eternity. All equally God, all existing, but all with specific roles and priorities. And the key to it all, and we're going to look at this a little bit more, is relationship. That God at his core is relationship, is in relationship, is love. And so as we go through, if we were to spend all of our time reading the rest of Genesis chapter 1, what we would see is God making the world. Now, often this text is reduced to figuring out how the world came to be, right? Six literal days, is it a time period, like was there evolution, was it whatever, right? And I'm not saying that that's not the purpose and I'm okay, like we're not going to spend time on that because I think that what's more important than even that is that this text begins to tell us why why the world was made. Why the world is made is very important. We know that the world is created by God. We know that, right? But why did God make it? That's even more important. That God, being sovereign and good and faithful in everything, decided to create this world and us in it. I think what's interesting that as we're reading, if we were to read through all of this text, we would see that after everything that God made, he would say that it was good. We see God right at the very beginning declaring things good. God is defining good and evil in the world right off the get-go. 
And with all of that, we see that this good and perfect world is made. And what's interesting is there is no death or pain or suffering or sickness. There is no destruction. There is no decay. Everything is as it should be. It is how God designed it to be made. There's a lush garden. There's teeming with all types of creatures, all types of food. This is what God intended the world to be. And I want to touch on that briefly because it is good for us to be reminded of this because obviously we live in a very different world. Our frustration and anger against injustice and evil, our frustration and anger against the atrocities that we see, our longing, I think that we all have in one degree or another, the longing for something better, that is good. The longing we have for a better world, the anger and frustration against evil is good. Because what, is being, what that is communicating is that we're longing for how things were originally intended to be. Because if you're frustrated, if you're mourning loss, if you're frustrated at pain and suffering, God is too, because this isn't how he designed the world to be. It is good for us to mourn and, be, and, and have that affect us. In our mourning and in our pain, what we're declaring, what our soul is screaming, is that this isn't how it should be. This isn't how it should be. And you're right. And I would ask, who told you that? Right? What I find so interesting about this is that you talk to somebody that, whether they believe in God or not, to watch innocents suffer, to watch kids suffer, to watch the atrocities, they would scream it with you. This isn't how it should be. I think that, sounds harsh, but I think pain and suffering is one of the loudest testaments of a God in the world. Because if we were just blobs of goo that has evolved over thousands of years, if survival of the fittest is the design that this, or is what this world is, then wouldn't we embrace suffering? Wouldn't we embrace death? Wouldn't we embrace that? Wouldn't it be good for society that weakness falls off? The weakest members are, are pushed aside. Wouldn't that be how this world is? But to say that the world united says this isn't how it should be, I would say that it goes to a deeper part of our soul that it was designed by a creator that communicates that I have made this place good and perfect and it's been destroyed, but that I am pursuing humanity and I'm going to make it right one day. We long for the garden and one day it will come. And so in the meantime, we can mourn pain and mourn suffering and mourn loss because God does too. And we can work for justice and work for restoration and work for reconciliation because that's God's heart too. And one day we can hope that when he comes, he will make all things right and it'll be as he originally designed. Thank be to Jesus for that. But that still doesn't answer the question, why? Why did God make the world? And I think that we get some answers in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, I am going to read this. And then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air of heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree which with the seed of the fruit and you shall have them as food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of heaven and everything that creeps on the earth and everything that is breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And, so, and, and it was so. And God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning on the sixth day. Everything that God made, he said it was good. But after he created humans, he said, it is very good. What's interesting here is we see that the God of all creation is ultimately relational. And I, and I mentioned I was going to talk about this, and I think that it's something that we have to understand, especially as we're talking about the idea of being image bearers, created in God's image. John, 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. And I've mentioned this before, but it's good for us to understand that God, this God of all the world, made human beings in his image. What, what does that mean? We're going to look at that. But, but I think at its core, we see that this God that is love, love cannot exist in singularity. Okay? I mean, I know Miley says that she does a better job loving herself, but we know. She's struggling, Right? We need, in order to experience love, there needs to be at least two people. And for God to say that I am love communicates that God at his absolute core is relationship, is in relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, experiencing love, showing grace, showing honor, bringing glory one to another. And it reminded me of an icon that was uh, painted by a Russian painter named Andrei Rubilov. I have a picture, hopefully. And, I, and what we're going to see in this is now, what I'm not saying is that God is three specific individual bodies, okay? It's not what we're saying. But this was painted by this painter to show the idea of relationship in regards to the Trinity. We see the Father, Son, and Spirit around a table. The table in, in the culture of like, especially back then in Middle Eastern culture, was the most intimate experience you could have as the food that you're partaking in is going in you and strengthening you and becoming part of your DNA. So the same food is going into you at my, the table with me. And you can see the posture as they're preferring one another and their hands are, are giving it, like kind of submitting one to another. And what's interesting about this photo that I want to point out is that you see this right here, little box. When this was originally made and being hung where it was at, historians say that that was a mirror. And the idea was is as you're looking at this picture of the Godhead, essentially, in fellowship, preferring one another, that you would see your face in the mirror. And I would say that the reason for that, it was as though we see both hands 
that God is inviting you, inviting the viewer to the table. That he's inviting this, this loving, beautiful relationship that God has existed in for all of eternity. He has opened up and he's inviting in you and me. And so when we look at the idea of image, we see that God made humans, made the world to open up and invite us in to this relationship. But with image bearing comes several other things. When God makes humans in his image, what he automatically is doing in that moment is he's also giving humans dignity and value and worth and ultimately purpose. Every human being, whether they follow Jesus or not, has dignity, has value. They're loved by God and they have worth. And so we don't have to search for that We don't have to earn that. That has been given to us by God. And so as he's calling them to be image bearers and to image him, um, we see that it's kind of unpacked a little bit. I'm not going to reread all of it, but the first thing when it comes to being an image bearer, which we all are, we see that it involves representation. What I mean by that is that if we're an image of God in the world, it's as though God was placing us in the world to communicate something about himself to the creation around us, but also to one another. And so with representation, it was as though humankind is the physical, visible representation of God in the world. How do we do that? I think human beings were originally designed to image God, and it was almost like as though a reflection, that we would, as we were receiving love and experiencing this relationship with God, that we would reflect that back to one another and the world around us. It's a reminder that God is king, that God is good. It's almost like a mirror. But imaging God is not just representation, it's also responsibility. We see that he says, steward the earth, have dominion over it, cultivate it. It's this idea that God placed his image in the garden to not just reflect him and represent him, but to care for his creation, to care for it to be stewards of it. A steward cares for somebody else's stuff as though it's their own. And we, human beings, were created to image God in how we care for or quote over rule over the world. God's intention was that humans would be the reminder that God is king, but that they would also be reflecting and imaging God as they ruled for and cared for and stewarded his creation in the world. Which leads to the question, how does, would Adam and Eve know how to image God or care for the world? How would they know how to live? And what we would find if we read the whole text is that God, it seems, had a pattern of visiting these human beings at the cool of the night and walk with them in the garden. That God would, he entered into a relationship with human beings and he would be with them. And I think this really leads to the third way that we image God, and that is in relationship. Being fully accepted and had full access to God, which is something that none of us have ever fully experienced. But these were perfect humans. There was nothing, there was no sin, there was no destruction, there was no decay. 
they were fully acceptable and fully approved to God. But they also had full access, right? Because they were perfect, because there was no sin, there's no flaw, they were able to be with a holy and perfect God without any separation. This was how God designed the world to be. And we, as relational beings, created and designed to be in relationship with God, we are also designed and created to be in relationship with one another. And in fact, when we're in relationship, often that is the time, we ex- the moments that we experience God. That, those are the image moments. We image God as a corpor- corporately, as a group, but we also image God one another. When you show someone grace and when you show somebody mercy, when, you show, when you're able to forgive, when you're able to pursue and love on people, they're experiencing image in some regard or the other because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, right? And so what's interesting about relationship is that I would say it's one of the most fundamental, fundamental human experiences. That to be in isolation is the most inhumane experience a human could endure. It'll destroy. It'll kill. And so God, being good, creates these human beings to image him in the world through representation, through uh, responsibility, and through relationship. And he places them in this perfect, lush, beautiful world, this garden where they can ex- grow a family and cultivate this world and make you know, families, make communities, make cities where they can bring um, harnessing the natural resources and bringing it all together and creating this beautiful, good world. They wouldn't have anything they need. They'd have everything they want. And as they multiplied and growed, yeah, I know, see, multiplication, the world would be awesome. And I would say that every one of us hears that and be like, man, that sounds great. Obviously, what happened? Well, that's next week. We're going to get into what happened. But I think for us, what we can pull from this is, is besides, I know I went through a lot of stuff, a few things that I want to just encourage us with for us as we see God and, and see his word, as we close out our time. One, I would say mourn. It's okay to mourn loss. It's okay to mourn pain and evil and suffering. It's the right response. I'm not saying we stay in that space, but that's good. I think it's more unhealthy to be like, everything's going to be okay, it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine. And then, you know, a well-intended brother say, hey, all things work together for good, man. Like, I'm like, yeah, I'm just, this is great. But no, it's, it's okay to mourn loss. It's okay to look out and see what's going on and seeing the death and seeing the destruction. Be like, this isn't how it should be. And I'm frustrated and I'm angry. And, and God, come, like, come, Lord Jesus, come. Fix it. Because like I said, as we're doing it, we're, we're screaming out that, there's, that God didn't make it this way. This wasn't how what God intentioned. That's not what his intention was. I think another thing that we can challenge ourselves with is rejoice in God's generosity. We see that God created a world and declared it good. We also see later in Scripture that says that every good and perfect gift comes from God. And you have a lot of things in your life that's good. You have a lot of things that God has given you. And I would say, rejoice in that. God is generous. Like, every good thing you have is from him. And I think it's a good posture to have because it's easy to focus on what's wrong in the world, what's wrong in our lives, what we don't have. 
But I would say as we're looking for God, when you start going like, Lord, what have you given me? You're, you're beginning the steps of looking for God in your everyday life. What has God given me? What is God doing? And rejoice in those. Celebrate those moments. I think the fourth thing is respond with gratitude. So as you see those things, acknowledge God. God, thank you. Thank you that you gave me this. Thank you that you provided this. Thank you that my kids are healthy. Thank you that I have kids. Thank, like, <clears throat> practice gratitude. Because as we look in the world and see destruction and chaos and, and harm and all these things, we were responding by going, Lord, like, what are you doing? What have you provided, both corporately but also individually? And then we're acknowledging God. God, you are good. Thank you, right? What you'll find is that it brings peace because you know that God is not absent. And then lastly, enjoy God's design. And what I mean by that is God's desire to share himself with you. God's desire to work through your brothers and sisters in relationship. God's desire to bring you in and invite you to the table. That's what you were made for. And I would say enjoy that. Because here's the thing. You may feel like, I don't know if God really wants me at his table. You may feel like, I got a lot of stuff I need to work on first before I can really enjoy God in that space. You may feel like you're always failing and you're never good enough for God. But let me tell you this. If we were to go to the end of our story or towards the end, we'd see that God came. Jesus came to this world in that perfect life that God demanded from human beings to be in relationship with him. Jesus lived that life for you and for me. He lived the life that we are not capable of living. He secured righteousness, right standing with God. But also, in his life, he also went to the cross and he died for all of the areas of failure that we constantly fail at. Not just what we did before, but what we're going to do. He died for that. And so he secured for you and for me and anybody that wants it, right standing with God, but also forgiveness for the areas that we fail. And this is good for both the person that does not know Jesus, but it is really good for the person that does. That you cannot make yourself more acceptable to God. That you cannot make God any more or less pleased with you in your work or in your failure. That Jesus in Jesus alone is the only one that is pleasing to the Father, and we are pleasing God most when we're clinging to Christ, that his righteousness is given to us through faith, and we're trusting him, and that has radical transformation on us because it means I don't have to prove myself to God anymore. I don't have to prove myself to other people anymore. It gives me freedom to go, in my weakness, I can come and receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. That changes my whole posture and it allows me to see that both the bad isn't God punishing me and the good is not God rewarding me. It's that a good God is inviting me in to relationship with himself and he knows that I'm jacked up. That's why he came. 
and I'm able to be in relationship with him because his son made it possible. I need to be reminded of that every day because I mess up every day. And so today, as we have a very explicit representation of being invited to the table, we're going to have communion. Worship team, you guys come up. We're going to have communion available. You're invited to the table by faith, trusting that Jesus' body was broken for you, his blood was shed for you, so that you could be in relationship with the Father by faith and faith alone. If you're struggling, come. Grab it. We're not going to take it together corporately. You can take it whenever you'd like. Maybe take it with a friend. Take it with your spouse. You can take it by yourself, whatever it may be. But take it. And as you're doing it by faith, you're trusting who God is and what he's done and his grace for you. With that, let me pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you've invited us in.